Today's story is called Cape Hellas. My grandfather fought at Gallipoli with the Munster Fusiliers. He was broken forever by the experience. That fateful landing on the beaches has been reimagined many times, but here is my peculiar Anglo-Irish version. This one is not for the faint-hearted. Cape Hellas. It's a brilliant, bright blue day, and we are slipping over the water towards the Turkish coast. I can't quite believe that the moment has come at last. All the waiting, all the speculating, all the hypothetical battles must now give way to the truth. We are to land on the beaches at Gallipoli and force the Turks back from their strongholds in the hills. We are a powerful force, the best of the empire, English, Irish, Australian and New Zealander. There'll be plenty to settle between us after the conflict, of course, but for now we're a solid fighting crew. The gunboats ahead of us are pounding the cliff encampments where the Turkish artillery, or what's left of it, hope to rain down damnation upon us. There was no preparation in our training for a beach landing. We will have to be swift to establish our position, construct or enhance cover for ourselves, and then charge to take the slopes and force them back from the edge where they can look down on us. We hope that the Turks will be too distracted by our gunboat bombardment and that their spirit is already weakened by our campaign of continual shell attack from the sea. It will be minutes now before we descend into the landing craft and are towed to our positions at the beachheads. We are concerned that one of our gunboats has taken a hit. It must have been a lucky shot from the cliffs. We can see off the port bow that she won't make it, and men are taking to the water to save themselves. We look to our commander for the order to turn to their rescue, but no... It's straight ahead for us. The Navy can look after themselves. This is an army operation, and we cannot spare the time. I see some men struggling in the water, and the Turkish shells keep raining down, firing on unarmed men in the water. This is war, and there can be no quarter given by either side. Death is riding beside us. A few weeks ago we were presented to the King in Hackwood Park. I wondered but just for a moment, if he really was my king, the king of Ireland, given that I am to risk my life for this cause. But that was in another life. The world didn't change when I signed up and when I marched up and down the parade ground and learned how to shout orders in the clipped British army way. No, the world is only changing now. Even in Egypt, with the heat expressing the tension we all felt, it was just a waiting game and we still really don't know whether this is a great gamble or a winning strategy. There has been some confusion as to which force is taking a lead, but perhaps it doesn't matter. We're all in this together, and army or navy, we're on the same side. The order is given, and I gather my own men, and we move down into the landing craft. The boats are tied up together and require a good deal of disentangling before the flotilla can fan out properly behind the ship that is towing us. We'll have to take the last hard yards ourselves and be ready to jump into the water if beaching the craft becomes tricky. I can feel the sun burning me, despite the cool spray from the sea. I have my brother Fred beside me, joking all the way, making light of the whole thing, and lifting the men's brooding thoughts away from fear and homesickness. I can see the beaches, I can hear the gunfire, relentless from behind and above. There's a good distance from the shore to the bottom of the slope. We'll have to make quick decisions about how far to risk an early advance. 
One of the boats to the side of us has been hit, and its entire crew tipped into the drink. They can cling to the wreck of the craft and still make it into shore, but there's blood in the water and, my God, a head, is it? To witness a decapitation before I've got my feet wet. I pray my stomach at least will not give out. The air is screaming already, or is that just inside me? And now we're out of the boat, we're in the water, and there is a hail of lead and shells coming down at us. Fred has been hit, and I'm, I'm holding him up so he doesn't drown. I can see that some more of my men have been shot as well. There is poor Tommy Ryder floating face down in the water. And as we churn it up, as we mix in blood and fire to the calm Mediterranean, I can't help thinking how beautiful it is, how the deep blue sea and the hot sun on the beaches and cliffs of Gallipoli is, or was, so beautiful. A few of us, far too few, make it to shore. I'm talking to Fred, I'm telling him to keep breathing, to hang on, and any old cliché I can find rolling around my brain. But Fred is limp beside me. His face is white and he's not breathing. My corporal eases the body away from me and pulls me down as the sand behind me is punctured with rifle shot. I turn my head and see a shell smash into the face of Thomas O'Dwyer, a trainee dentist from Dundrum. His teeth turn to shrapnel and his head melts. Turning around again, there's a line of bodies in front of me, all mown down. Looks like the Navy didn't do such a smart job of taking out the Turkish gun encampments after all. The corporal, and for some strange reason now I can't seem to find his name, helps me to pile the bodies on top of one another to form a kind of barrier behind which we can try to get our bearings. Other boats are jamming in behind us, and there's not enough room on the shore because we can't advance. It's hard to tell who's wounded and who's just terrified. There's a mewling sound that rises up, background noise to the hammering of the guns, and blood squeaking on the hot sand and smeared on all our faces. At least we can get a few shots off now, and some artillery has been successfully dragged ashore. This will test their metal all right. Up until now, we've been sitting ducks, and they can pick us off at will. We've covered as many dead bodies as we can with sand to build up a decent bank to shelter behind. We know this can only be a temporary measure, and the flies have arrived to try and feed on the dead meat. That's what so many brave men here have become, on the first day of our glorious campaign, food for flies. But there is the sheer combat, the dedication now just to violence that has calmed us, and my head is able to think strategically, although all our options appear to be hopeless, and it is evident that most of us will die here on this beach today, tomorrow, or later of some septic wound. Part of the problem is that we can't even see the Turks, We've made a couple of sorties now to the cliffs, and although we've lost more men, we can at least estimate how far away the Turks are. The trouble is, they have such a clear view of us. We will have to advance if we're to stand any chance of getting out of here, but it's going to be very difficult. I've suggested we try to do it now, even though we're shocked, even though we're depleted, because I can't see matters improving on that score. And also, to be truthful, I have to do something to take action. My brother is now a rotting sandbag. Yesterday he was laughing and joking. This morning he was still at it, but I've been overruled. We're to stay put and fight it out till dark. Then, perhaps, in the morning, we'll be given the signal to advance. It's so hard to know where our orders are coming from and who is making them. 
There are landings all along the coast, three beaches this side and further round where the Australians and New Zealanders have gone. No idea how well or badly any of them are doing. Night falls and the guns gradually cease. All afternoon we've been sniping and shooting in hope. Some Turks have fallen and we can see the corpses further up the beach by the foot of the steeper cliffs. What we don't know is whether this has weakened them or made them consider pulling back from the coast. We will try and rest tonight in the company of the dead and fight again when light comes. There's a weariness in all of those who are left alive, as if the whole war had taken place in one day. The smell of blood and sweat, the smell of salt and guns. This is our atmosphere. This is what we breathe from now on. I go among the men, all now trying to tidy up the dead, all now pale from grief and fury. I'm looking for volunteers for tomorrow. I am to lead a troop to try and take the cliff top. We have gathered our own artillery in one strategic location and will hoist them onto platforms we will erect just before dawn. Another plan, another order that has materialised out of nowhere, command from afar, but we follow, blindly we follow. All quiet at last. The dark swoops down on us in a blanket of oblivion. There are no stars tonight. Everything is blotted out, forgotten. We are cautioned that the water rations are low. How did they think we could endure this without water? So rum and whiskey are passed round, just to numb the flesh, just to ease us into sleep, though not quite yet. I have written out the list for keeping watch, and I will take the last hour before dawn, ready to scramble up and run with the charge. We are also ordered to start digging trenches, as a fallback position if the attack on the cliffs fails. It seems to me it is certain to fail. We are just tin soldiers now. Some of the men are drunk. After the digging we talk rather than sleep. We're all afraid we won't wake from whatever slumber is trying to claim us. We're terrified of what we might dream. So here we are, singing and drinking, and we wonder what they will order us to do next, after we have finished with the current debacle. We should sing songs of defiance and victory to rouse our hearts for what is to come, but instead we take a snipe at our masters. I grew so rich that I was sent by a pocket borough into Parliament. I always voted at my party's call, and I never thought of thinking for myself at all. No, he never thought of thinking for himself at all. I thought so little they rewarded me by making me the ruler of the King's Navy. He thought so little they rewarded he by making him the ruler of the King's Navy. And we all burst into fits of laughter. Here we are, dying in the sand with the bodies of our brothers lying all around and we are laughing heartily and hatefully at the great originators of this lark. Who would have thought that Gilbert and Sullivan had the answer in the Dardanelles? But sleep does come, as it must, cutting through the black fog of night and taking us one by one to the deep beyond of exhaustion. I am dreaming, wanting to plunge into the netherworld of unspeaking emptiness, of black silence and the banishment of thought, but instead I am dreaming. Fred is a young boy playing on the sand of a beach in Ackle, the far west of my western isle. He splashes and dances in the foam, his boots and his socks all wet and heavy, but on he dances and he laughs and he smiles and is utterly a fresh soul in the dazzling light of a cold Irish day. And my parents are walking on the strand, holding each other's hands, taking the air, as unconcerned with slaughter and war as anyone might be who inhabits the calm world of peace. 
There is a part of all of us that yearns forever to be elsewhere. But if elsewhere is hell, then who would not long to be returned to a dull day of the ordinary, the quotidian slowness of life, and all its many faults reviewed now as charms, seen again as small delights. My little insignificant life, how I want it back with its narrow wiles and its selfish habits, and how I want Fred to be with me, and both of us to dance with Winnie, and for the evening never to end, as we smoke and chatter and giggle our frivolous way to a comfortable passing of our time. And because our minds cannot but make use of fear and terror, the dream darkens and ushers in the nightmare of the real. The water that Fred is dancing in turns scarlet with massacre, and severed limbs, smashed skulls, floating eyes bob around him as he laughs and dances on. And even Ackle is strewn with the shredded viscera of men, the beach covered with the pulp of ruination. A generation is washed up on the shore. We are all the detritus of political ambition and military wrath. In my dream I open my mouth to howl, and even as I drown in the bloody surf no noise escapes me. I am watching, watching it all unfold in its steady sequence of murder and betrayal. But I am mute. I have no words and I cannot scream, and I know somewhere deep inside me that even if I am spared death, I will remain forever mute about what I have seen. There are stirrings, mumblings, whispers, coughing. I rise from somewhere into consciousness. I am untimely ripped from sleep. It is my watch. I scatter the wild nightmares as best I can and try to grasp hold of the present moment. I rub my eyes and look at the fleck of rose gold across the beam of the sky. It is very early and before sunrise, but the world will not cease with its turning, and I must unstiffen my aching limbs and move out to the lookout post. This is, I am sure, the best place to be shot when the Turks wake to complete our destruction. There is a low hum. I cannot locate the source of the noise until suddenly I realise that our body sandbags are beset with flies. Millions of flies. They are feasting on the dead, and then the stink reaches me. This is not even rotten meat. This is the fresh kill of yesterday, and already they swarm and gorge and lay their eggs. All mother's sons are now food for maggots. I vomit copiously all over my equipment, and my body tries to purge itself of everything. I heave and retch, and continue to be sick after all the contents of my being have been spilled out on the sand. Christ, can it go on like this? What a start to the second day of this great campaign. There's no good in contemplation or reflection. I want to plunge into the sea and swim away. What can we do here but be crucified for Churchill's plan? I take my ration of water and cool the burning in my bile-scarred throat. I could drink gallons, but only a quarter of a canteen for now. I drink to the memory of my brother. No, I am not able to cope with the truth of his sudden evaporation from life, Fred and the others. There will be death in war, I was told. There will be the fallen. But I had thought, foolishly, they would be few, not legion. I see movement on the ridge above us. Our enemy shifts to his purpose. After rousing the men and chewing on dried meat, we are ready to steel ourselves for an early assault on the Turks. I give the order, and we clamber up out of our sand pit and charge. They are ready for us, and two of our party of ten are cut down, climbing over the bank of bodies. They lie there on a catafalque of slaughter. I spy an early crow 
come to taste the carrion. His kind will not be disappointed with the day that's in it, I fear. We trundle across the beach, and the sand turns to dry earth. There is some cover, a small stand of bushes and a boulder. We scrape home to our new advanced position and count the cost. Another two men down on the run-in, and just now one more trying to drag his comrade to safety. I let fly with a bullet, and it catches a Turkish scout. He crumples, and I find myself wondering how I can have done such a thing. I have killed. Before they were all blind shots to nothing. Now there is an enemy down with my name on his scalp. I feel nothing. There are five of us behind a rock, and we are killing the Turkish army one by one. An hour later, and the sun has found us out. We are being scorched, and knowing that we are so occupied, the Turks are firing over our heads at the main division behind us. The four men look to me to decide on what to do. We can press on, but only to certain elimination and for little gain, or we can crawl back with some small knowledge at least, and a possible route for a major attack. So I give the nod, and after a zigzag run over the open ground, we hunker down with our fellows and are greeted as heroes returning in victory. And it does feel good, a clap on the shoulder for all of us. We are deluded beyond all reasoning. Five out of ten return, and we call that an achievement. One of the men has taken a hit in his heel. He is alive, but cannot stand. Our poor Achilles, our farce of the Trojan War, and the Turks keep firing, and our casualties rise inexorably. We are told that the sorties will continue until it has been decided which is the best angle for a full-scale assault. But with each small party venturing out, the casualties compromise the force available for a larger attack. All along the beach, pods of soldiers run from cover and up to cliffs and the sand dunes. As with my group, they are halved and return to their bloody quarters, thus depleted. More of our gunboats appear in the waters to optimise the bombardment and more firepower is delivered to us on the shore. But for every action, the unloading of supplies and weapons, there is a price to be paid in lives, as the Turks do not miss any chance to slice away at our division. The number of bodies increases and no one can tell now if they outnumber the living. What are we to do with our great accumulation of carcasses? We are building walls with them, yet the more bodies the more flies. It is hard to breathe now because each breath is an inhalation of insects. Everywhere men are coughing and spitting. All of us are coated in a foul paste of blood and sweat and crushed flies. The need for clean water becomes more urgent. For each exertion, each wringing out of us, we need water to replenish ourselves. Fights break out within our ranks over the fair division of the new gold, the ultimate value. But there is so little water. We know, as we look around, that disease will come. We are dying where we lie, but also fouling ourselves, for we cannot all reach the pits dug within the trenches to dispose of our waste. Movement along the line is desperately slow, and we dare not risk exposing ourselves without good cause. I think my sense of smell has been deadened, thank the Lord, or whatever malevolent force has replaced him, for the stench of decay and ordure and urine, the reek of putrid flesh and the fluids of disintegration are a perfume that cannot be borne consciously. I am spared a further test of my courage today, save to scramble out and help drag two maimed corpses back to the cesspit. All the exploratory actions lead, as predicted, to tremendous casualties, and no one can make the overall calculation now. We will only be able to count our dead when the massacre is over, and those who do not call their name are struck from the lists of the living. We who are still alive begin to doubt we are, 
as the ghosts crowd our minds and the beach is heaped with cadavers. A murmur reaches me of the next grand plan. Half of the men will try to force themselves to the top of the high ground tomorrow at sunup. We will concentrate our force at the west end of the beach, near to the place where my sterling crew held its own under the cover of a rock for a few hours. How the Turk would quake if he knew the brilliance of our stratagems. Our plans are worse than desperate, more tragic by far than mere madness. It is the hubris of our culture's boast that is being revealed for all to see. We are the savage fools, not they. We are the ignorant pagans with our de-civilization, which has built our new world only upon mounds of death. Here we are now, a weeping jelly of bone and gristle and pus, and we are to be divided in two. Half of us will slither to the top of the hill if we can, and half of us will fire our guns into the air. Some Turks will die, assuredly, but we will die also. Yes, we have proven ourselves magnificent at dying. We go to it with resignation. It confirms our stature as unthinking slaves, tethered to the dreams of a power we obey, but now secretly loathe. If we mutinied, if we deserted, we would be shot. So we stay to be shot in proud subservience. We cling to our hierarchy of lunacy, and the same fate awaits us all. Another night flings down its filthy, matted rug upon us. Once again we embrace the offering of vivid delirium. One or two stars peek through the inky firmament, but it is too short, it is too shallow, it is too tempting, too suggestive of otherwise. We wake up, and we are encamped in the grit of fetid now. Our dreams were lies. Our minds conjured a balm for us from yearning romantic madness. When we wake, we wake to the scarlet curse of the present. I look around and find only infection and rot, men dying at different rates, and the cold calculation brought in from afar. Even the solace of delusion is spattered with dissent. Wound after wound, we are meat with bullets, waiting for the great bludgeon of the next order. Here it comes, the morning and the rising and the surging into another blind lurch. It is half of us away, and we run together like hares before a hound, towards what we know is disaster, towards what we must. We dig and scrabble and haul ourselves up the crumbling slope. Pushed by the force of desperation, we somehow ascend, and I find myself on a level surface, and I am running towards what I know must be the Turkish guns, and then before me a soldier with his pistol pointing. I am now without any bearings, because this has never been suggested. A man with a weapon and a target, and I am the target. I am something to be shot. How obvious is the absence of consideration. You may face the barrel of a gun. How to behave? Like a gentleman, like a soldier, like a slave begging for life? How do you behave? Luckily, you don't, because you are shot. A handgun delivered its lead into my shoulder. I fell. I was blasted backwards. I sprang into the air, and I thought for a moment I was flying. No pain at first, just the sensation of movement, of being lifted and flung. I was a somersault in the fabulous circus of war. I was high with ordnance and thrown on my back in the sand. What was I then? I was another cut of prime steak. I was a gossamer thread from the end of all stories. But I didn't die. I lay staring at the great wide arc of the sky. I heard noise and clatter and shots and screams all around me, but I lay motionless, too far beyond thought or decision even to close my eyes. I looked at clouds scudding by, at patterns evolving and dissolving, 
at the peaceful heavens covering the furious squealing earth. I could fade away now, just slowly ebb into the hot ground. My soul, my memories, my loves and hates could just gently disintegrate and trickle off into nothingness. I would become disentangled from the universe and slide into dissipation. Immortality, it seemed, was just eternal dying, becoming less and less, letting perception surrender to indifference and ebbing out into the emptiness of space. Eons might pass, and yet some ember of my being would still be quietly smouldering, my ash turning to smoke on the soft breeze, the end of the world continuing moment by moment and never reaching the totality of death. And then suddenly, after how many hours lying still, I do not know. I was roughly taken by the shoulders and dragged. A retreat had begun, and soldiers were gathering the wreckage of advance and running back to the hellhole of the beach. I could have been left for dead, but some flicker in my wide, staring eyes had been enough for men to claim me for the living. I should bless them for it, though I often wonder whether all would have been easier if I had just continued with my fading. The pain began when I understood what was happening to me. I juddered awake and into agony. My shoulder was on fire and my whole body was roasting from the wound. I was bleeding from both sides as the bullets seemed to have gone right through me. I could not speak, and so I could not beg the men to be more careful. We jolted and staggered down the slope over rocks and sand and blasted bodies. We slithered at last into the pit of our origin and breathed in the stink of our failure. I began then to pass in and out of consciousness as the pain started to blind me. My body gave way to a throbbing torture that kept me bound and silent. I drifted through sleep and what passed for awareness. The odours of death and disease filled my lungs as men sweated and shat themselves beside me. Dysentery greeted the returnees as what water we had absorbed the filth around it. We drank what we could and vomited and grew weaker and the pain grew in my wound, and I knew that the bullet had spared me only to inflict a slow spite. Surely gangrene would set in. There were murmurs from those around me of other wounds hereabouts whose wretch-inducing mephitic stench left them now isolated from care. Comrades in arms edged away along the trenches to escape the smell of putrefaction. Yet putrefaction was our oxygen, and the sandbag bodies were oozing with maggots. I longed for the pain to rise to its crescendo, and beat me savagely back to sleep. It was night, and I was woken by the sound of what seemed to be singing. Not jolly operetta. The time for satire had passed, when Hell's Gate had opened, and the angels of slaughter had danced among us. No, this was solemn, hymn and psalm. There were prayers being spoken. I was, where, back in St. Bartholomew's, listening to the Sunday sermon. It occurred to me that I was present at my own funeral, and a childish pleasure seeped through me. They would speak of sweet things now, of happy memories and the light-filled days of youth. But it was not my funeral, and it was not St. Bartholomew's. We were beached still, stagnant in the Ottoman heat, and the men were simply praying for their fallen brothers. How long it had taken for the need to make ceremony of this madness, to be serious and recall what had just taken place. Orders came down to stop the service. It distracted from the keeping of the watch. But we were defenceless anyhow. If the Turks decided to charge at us, we had no strength to lift our guns. Where do orders come from, I wondered, in my days of pain and anger? They appear without warning and crawl inside us. 
There is no great announcement. No general comes before us to explain and justify. Perhaps they fear they might be torn to shreds. We are all wondering the same thing, here in this seaside sickbed. How long shall we remain? And if we are to fight any further, then where is the fresh water? And where are the provisions, not to mention ammunition and guns that don't jam up in the heat? We have to get away from this place, for we cannot survive here. And yet the orders do come, the orders that pile misery on madness. There is to be another assault. We are to press on, using the valuable intelligence that we have gathered. There is a sneer that ripples out among the men, the derision that surely must be in subordination, were it not for the fact that we will obey. How can it be that with faith and enthusiasm so defiled by massacre and defeat, these humans will rise again and stagger again to be shot down again? We will all drown in the sand. Perhaps the generals are wounded too. Perhaps they are dumbfounded by shots to the head. I can picture them standing round the table of strategy with the maps laid out before them and the model boats and the waves of infantry and they move their pieces on the board of chance. They do not notice that one of them is mortally hit. Half of their faces have been blown away and blood and brain tissue drip down onto the game of war. But so engrossed are they in the mighty struggle that they do not recognise in each other the smell of decay and the sure coming of death. I have tried to stand up but I cannot. With one man on each arm, I am hauled upright to address my superior. I am unavailable for combat, he says. There is a shipment of supplies, yes water, and yes food, and more guns, and a plan for the removal of bodies. We have been stalled, that is all, stalled, but we are regrouping for a new assault. The aim is the same, the strategy the same. We bombard and we charge. We will take their position, God damn it. We will unseat the Turk from his castle on the hill, and we will show the lazy Oriental brute that he is no match for the yeomanry of England. What about Ireland, sir? What of it? This is an Irish regiment. We are all in this together. Of course, sir. But you are in no fit state to continue. You appear to have allowed yourself to be shot. I am in pain, sir. It was careless. Terribly sorry, sir. You will miss the next phase of victory. Total defeat is just a phase of victory, then, is it, sir? The man's delirious. The bullet has gone right through his shoulder. Significant loss of blood and infection in the wound. He may live, so will have to be evacuated. Large contingent of the lame and are now useless, heading back to Egypt to recuperate. My superior departed, and I slumped back to my supine torment. I was to be plucked from the maw of Satan and delivered to a field hospital on the Egyptian coast. I would probably still die of my wound, but at least I would not have to witness so many of my fellows expire in the mire of Gallipoli, playing the grand old Duke of York and marching up to the top of the hill, bang and down, and bang and up again, and on and on, until all the little soldiers are Turkish stew. Here I go, splash, splash, back into the waves, and paddle, paddle out to the boats. Here come the shells, boom, and more men fall, Men are being killed, who are helping the men who are wounded, while trying to kill the men who are, what? They're defending their country. Isn't that what a chap is supposed to do? Defend your country? Well, why didn't we just do that then? Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please share.